In the Reading Corner today, I have enormous pleasure in welcoming Christopher Lloyd. Christopher is the founder and publisher of What on Earth Books. He's a graduate in history from Peterhouse, Cambridge, and a former science correspondent for the Sunday Times. He's also the editor of a new publishing venture in association with Encyclopedia Britannica. It's the Britannica All New Children's Encyclopedia. So today we're going to be talking about this new project and why a print-based encyclopedia seemed like a good idea in the internet age. Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you back because you have been a guest before, uh, but we have something new to talk about today. Thank you, Nikki. So I do want to start with that idea, an encyclopedia in book form when we can just about access anything at the click of a button. I mean, why did you want to do that? Mm. Well, um, I had a funny feeling that there was a a really good reason for doing this now. And since having got to this point where we've launched the new book, I've now realised there are dozens of good reasons for having a print encyclopedia now. It's almost hard to know where to start. Obviously, the old-fashioned idea of an encyclopedia is that that's where you go to find the answer to something. You look something up, and it's divided into an A to Z, maybe in many volumes. And Encyclopedia Britannica is the is the is the archetypical one. It was the you know it's two hundred and fifty years old, and even in their first edition in seventeen sixty eight, it was on an A to Z uh, structure. And um, of course, over those years, people have learned to trust. Britannica or Chambers or, or or whatever the sort of really big, powerful encyclopedia brands were in the 19th and 20th centuries. But in 2012, Encyclopedia decided that their time was over as a printed publication. The business model had disappeared. So they put everything online. And funnily, funnily enough, I was talking to the head of Encyclopedia Britannica in Australia just yesterday. And he said, if, if someone had told me we'd have a, a children's printed encyclopedia, a new one in print coming out now five years ago, they would have laughed me out of the office. So something's changed. Now, something has changed. We live in a world of, you know, fake news. We, we don't know who to trust. We become very worried about the world of online, whether it's too much time in front of screens, what that does to our children's interpersonal skills when it comes to communicating with people, what it does in terms of our attention span. All these anxieties that we have naturally get amplified in this online world we're connected to to such an extent and nobody's in control. And suddenly our children are in a a universe Mm -hmm. of zero gravity and we're all floating around desperately trying to find someone to grab onto. And here comes a new printed Britannica Encyclopedia for Children. And that's why this is so important. It's something you can reach out to, you can touch. It's printed, it's editorialized in a way that is ideal, we think, we hope, for anyone aged kind of seven to 107. It's in a nice, comfortable, big font. It's got very arresting graphics and photographs. And we've tried to use all the production values that you can do in print that you can't quite get on a screen. And we've done a whole lot of other things as well that I think nudge the idea of an encyclopedia into something that makes it relevant for today's internet world. It's not an A to Z. And that is a big change. It is actually a journey through the universe of knowledge. And that appeals to me because I've written books on world history. And I think in chronological narratives. And and actually, what's interesting is that when you think in chronological narratives, you start to see patterns that you didn't realize, which allow you to tunnel through time in ways that you couldn't imagine possible. And you see things happening in the natural world, like 
a bee's nest is an incredible civilization that emerged first 100 million years ago. And guess what? When they want to relocate their nest, they vote on where to go because voting will give you the best possible chance of making the best decision. Because actually, a group of people are better positioned to make the right decision than one individual, which tells you a lot about democracy versus dictatorship, as well as a system of government. Um, but hang on a minute, we were talking about bees, but now we're talking about democracy. And now, well, this is the beauty of seeing the whole. This is the beauty of seeing everything in a way where you connect things and you don't leave them in little silos. So we've got rid of the A to Z, we've created eight chapters from the beginning of time to the present day, universe, earth, matter, life, that's natural history. Humans, ancient times, modern times, today and tomorrow's world, that's modern history. Let's create a universe of knowledge where we're not gonna try and answer all the questions. We're gonna introduce you to the topic. We're gonna to introduce you to some experts. They're all profiled throughout the book. And at the end of every chapter, you get to meet the experts. And it tells you a little interview from them about what they really enjoy about their jobs. We're trying to turn these experts into role models. So whether children are interested in astrophysics or zoology, it doesn't matter. They'll find somebody who's passionate about it too. And maybe that's gonna be their vocation. And if they find their vocation through this book, wonderful. The other thing is that I think young people, they don't actually know quite what it is they're really interested in. They're interested in lots of things, but because this covers all knowledge, you can almost discover more about what you are interested in, whether it's, you know, looking at tech and how one day you may be able to download a brain into a computer, or whether you're interested in the first writing and how they scraped those tablets together in ancient Mesopotamia, whatever it naturally might connect together and interest you as an individual, hopefully this will help those connections come to be. And therefore, this is a journey of curiosity. So is this a book that's fit for the 21st century? I really passionately believe it is. And I think it's taken the idea of encyclopedia into a much more energetic, interesting place. And what greater an opportunity is there to do this than with a brand like Britannica, who've been at this business for over 250 years? Yeah, fantastic answer there. Really comprehensive. And I, I just want to emphasise what you said about it being for all ages, because I read it literally from cover to cover. I didn't think I was going to, but Gosh. it was almost like right. I was Brilliant. propelled forward by the storytelling and wanting to know what happened next, which is strange kind of experience with an yeah. encyclopedia. And I thought that I might gift it to my nephews after but I can tell you that I'm not going to I'm right. keeping it on my bookshelf <laughs> because as an adult it's just as interesting to me and I know that it's something that I will yeah. revisit so there are lots of other things that I'd like to talk to you about um, one is to do with uh, this partnership with Britannica is this something that you felt yeah. that you needed a partner to work on or could you have done it by yourself? It seems like a massive undertaking to me. Yes. I mean, we couldn't have created this book on our own because we engaged very fully with the team at Britannica in Chicago. And they were terrific in helping reach the experts that we needed to and fact checking everything and feeding into the ideas of, you know, what we put in and what we leave out, which sharpen the book. So if we'd done it on our own, we wouldn't have had that benefit. And I don't think we'd have thought as hard about what an encyclopedia, you know, should be today if we hadn't had Britannica, because, you know, we're, we're, we're re-engineering stroke processing a very special brand that's been around for so long. And I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity and the being given the trust to Britannica to do that. 
uh, and they've been really wonderful people to work with. The partnership came about completely by chance. I was in Chicago on a book tour and was invited to a dinner because Britannica were looking for a publishing partner. And we've been, we were founded in 2010. And so we were sort of seven years into our journey as a children's nonfiction publishing company and beginning to grow quite fast. And the timing for us was just perfect. I want to talk a little bit about this being a triumph of design, which I think it is. The amount of mm. complex information that you're able to get onto a double page spread. Sure. And so I did want to mention yeah. your illustrators, um, who I think have done an amazing job. Thank you. So, for instance, there was one page. I mean, I could pick any page, to be honest, but page 40, um, how mm -hmm. rockets work. And you just have a simple diagram yeah. of two rockets. And because of the way that it's laid out, we have an instant compare and contrast between solid fuel and liquid fuel. It's economical, but yeah. it packs in a lot of information. Can you tell me a little mm. bit about that mm. process? Yes. So um, Andy Forshaw was the illustrator who I teamed up with to do the Bloomsbury books I worked on, um, What on Earth Happened um, and uh, What on Earth Evolved. And then he and I set up What on Earth Publishing to do a children's version of the history of the world. And we did these fold out timeline books, which have you know about a thousand illustrations in each one. And we worked incredibly closely together and we agonized over the midnight oil as we tried to get the history of Britain with the National Trust to press. And as we tried to do the history of science and engineering with the Science Museum, and it was all about graphical design and about illustrations and captions and how to get a balance between having the picture draw you in and then your resolution of curiosity be enhanced as you engage with the text and then for it to keep you there. And it, the, vis the visuals work at a certain distance incredibly well and they've got to be big enough to, to draw you in and then they mustn't be so big that they distract you from finding out more. And I, it's, I don't think it's a science very much, but it is an intuition. And Andy absolutely has that. And he's art directed this whole book, Spread by Spread. Uh, and I have to give him tremendous credit for being able to strike that balance as a gut instinct, really. And, and alongside him, Natalie Bellos, who heads up the Britannica Books division for us, um, has that same inherent kind of understanding of getting that balance right. And I think that's the art of, of making a book like this. And we're so lucky to have had them involved. That said, I also have a, a very strong love for graphics because I spent five years at the Sunday Times. You mentioned at the start, I was a technology editor for a while. And I would spend many late nights trying to explain complex things in science and technology through a well-constructed graphic uh, so I'm a great believer that illustration and captions can tell a, a, a big story in a simple, accessible way. And, and that's a nice example there with the rockets. Did they go through the whole book? I mean, I think you can explain things in a way that, um, you know, photographs. I mean, w w when we were designing this book, I suppose the other thing I wanted to say, we, you know, the, the bellwether for design in, in these sorts of books, I suppose, has been owned by Dorling Kindersley in the last 15 to 20 years. But, you know, it's become normalized to use the photography in the way that they have and that white background. And, you know, you pick up this book and there's no way we did not want anybody to think this was a DK book. It's got to be different. And the way that we've created a design system so that, that every page can be different and have its own pace, but it's got familiarity in terms of its layout. So you don't find yourself thinking that you're in a different universe every time you, 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 you turn the page. 
that's another real key design thing. And I think, you know, Andy spent a long time creating a whole design uh, vernacular for the book uh, before we even could start populating it with information. And, and that I think that's paid off. You see, that's the clever thing is that you have features for design mm. without formula. You don't yeah. have to find everything on every page. <laughs> you kind of respond no. to no. the material that you're dealing with. That's a really good point, Nikki, because I think you've got to be open minded enough to say this illustration is so amazing that we really want as few words on this page as possible. I give you a really good example of that. There are basically for your listeners here, there are four people inside what is a crystal cave in Mexico, which has the largest naturally forming crystals anywhere in the world, as far as we know. And there are these huge great boulders, like they're like they're sort of huge steel girders in a great skyscraper all meshed up together. And the size of the people when they're clambering on these crystals, they're so small that it tells you instantly in an, in an image, what an extraordinary marvel of the natural world this is. So that's an example where out, out of the window go all the other features we'd normally put on a page. We'll let the picture do the talking on this one. Another example is when we're talking about the different zones in mountains. I think it's the only time, there may be another ex example, where we actually put the spread so you have to turn the book through 90 degrees so that you can see what the atmosphere is like at the top of Mount Everest compared with the ecosystem at the bottom. And it goes through different layers and zones. It makes so much more sense to turn the page and to tell a story that way. But we've only done it because the particular story warranted a, a different design approach. So let's give it its chance. Let's give it its moment. Let's do it. So for yeah, photographs yeah, sometimes do something that a diagram can't do, don't they? But they can Absolutely. be expensive yeah. to purchase. Yeah. So you have to think carefully about when to use them and why. That one's worth every, every, I don't know how much we pay for that picture, but. You have a geomorphologist in your group of experts, so maybe he donated the picture to you. I've never seen it anywhere else before. If I had, I would have remembered it because it's, you know, it's that kind of a picture, isn't it? Yes, we have Paolo Forti, our geomorphologist, um, who is profiled at the back of the chapter. We ask him, what do you find exciting about your field? And he says, caves are the single part of the earth that is still the most unexplored. My life as a scientific caver was fantastic because I had the privilege to make astonishing explorations in places where no other human being had ever been before me. That's the sort of thing I'm hoping children will read and think, oh, I want to be, I want to discover an unknown cave, you know, yeah. and, and find out things. And you don't have to go into space. You don't have to, you know, there are so many places, even with 8 billion people nearly on the planet Earth, that's still waiting to be explored. And, and that's, that's grounds for real optimism and, and it's an uplifting thing. Mm. And indeed, your astrobiologist, uh, you would think that's to do with life in space. They look at life in the extreme parts of our own planet in order to try and understand space. That's right. I mean, you, you need to, uh, the extremophiles, you know, the living things that can survive when there's no oxygen and you're in 100 degrees of heat and, uh, you know, and, and life is unbelievably resilient and adaptable. So who knows, maybe there was life on Venus. You know, it's interesting to see that story suddenly capture people's imaginations in the newspapers and, and, and journals now and new missions going off there. You know, another great big known unknown, you know, what life is there in the universe? We still haven't proven there's life, has been life on other planets, but we're getting closer. You know, it really, it's an exciting time to be, you know, curious about the world and the universe and everything else. It really is. I wanted to ask you about your panel of experts. Uh, to me, looking at the book and reviewing it, it, it 
appeared that you'd given a great deal of consideration to the kind of representation of men, women, thinking about internationalism um, across the panel. Was that part of your thinking? Very much so. And I think, to be honest, um, it has to be right at the top of the priority for any credible non-fiction children's publishing house. And in these experts, we've tried to include a much broader representation of the overall universe of, of human diversity. But I hope that when children and adults leave through this book and they see you know, people with an African descent, they'll see you know, women and, and men, of course, equally alongside each other. I think it's a really important part of this idea of bringing the Britannica brand into the 21st century because it's all about acknowledging the fact that history hasn't always been written in an inclusive way. And that is now the most exciting challenge of the present and the future. Mm. And so I hoping this will, you know, is, is, is playing a part of that. Mm. Also to make the point that in term, it's not just a, a number counting exercise, but also the physical sciences, the technology, you have women represented in those areas too. So it's not that we've compartmentalized the, uh, areas of knowledge so um, that's a really positive aspect yeah then and that's true and I think if, if these experts can play a part as role models then it's really even more important that we allow children to identify with the, those people clo as closely as possible and that's not to say we can't always do better you know it is and it is difficult we worked long and hard with Britannica to find the right balance we didn't go about saying we want to have 30% from this part of the world and, and exactly 50% women and, and, and then fill the quota. Some people may might say that's what we should do. And that's a debate that we'll continue to have. We think that the, 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 the power of knowledge and the expertise that these people have should probably be the first thing and the trust and the, and the, the experience that they've had. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not allowing our unintentional bias to have any role at all in the way that we have included or not included various people. Hmm. I want to ask you a, a question from a publisher's, from a business point of view, really. Um, it must be incredibly expensive to produce something like this. Can it turn a profit? How many copies do you need to sell to make it a viable endeavour? We were very lucky. For the last four years, I've been invited to go to China on lecture tours and along the way I've met lots of people there and formed some great partnerships and one of them came to fruition about 18 months ago and when we forged the deal with Britannica they decided they wanted to purchase the rights to the next three or four years worth of Britannica books in one go and I have to say it's not normal or regular to be able to sell your the rights to books that haven't yet been written but in this case we were able to do that. And that, of course, gives us the capital we need to um, be able to create the book without having to take all the risk as a small company. And um, thanks to that partnership, um, we've been able to sort of create the um, resources we need to do this. Thanks to the Britannica partnership, we now have an opportunity to sort of commercialize what we've created in a global way. Having a brand like Britannica does increase the odds, particularly when they haven't been in commercial print publishing for a while and the brand as well so well known you know i really feel like we're, we, we've got an opportunity there to 
redefine the encyclopedia space. Um, fun enough, we just we just signed a partnership with their other company, which is Miriam Webster. You're probably familiar with Webster's dictionaries, mm-hmm. um, which are very big in the states. So we'll be starting to create a new um, series of children's dictionary types and thinking again, what's a dictionary mean, you know, and trying to give that a little bit of a nudge here and there, like we are with the encyclopedia. So that's happening at the moment. And that's also incredibly exciting. That's great. Um, We're going to talk briefly about another project that you've got, but before we leave the encyclopedia completely, the one thing that we didn't talk about, which I think is really important is the physicality of reading And I do think reading is a bodily thing and it's a tactile thing. And although it's a big, heavy tome, I can imagine children pouring over it, leaning into it. Yeah, yeah. The two things I would just add is one is our we had a a book dummy made, you know, just a blank dummy of the book when we thought we'd understood the the trim size. Nancy, our publisher, picked up and she looked at it and basically threw it in the bin and said, no, it's useless. It's no good at all. Can't be that big. And she chopped the size down. And I thought, you know, why would you do that with something, you know, but she cut the size down because it is more manageable. If it was bigger than it is, it would really, you'd think, live on the coffee table or on a bookshelf, it'd be a trophy book. But just by making that a little bit smaller, it feels like something you can hold to your body, like playing the cello. And I really respect her for that. The other thing is that, and this is the topic for a whole other podcast, if ever we get the chance, I do personally believe reflected light has a whole different meaning and process and pathway in the brain than emitted light. And because it's a book, children are engaging with this in the way that our ancestors engaged with all information because they're looking at the reflection of light, the hues, the shadows, and you want to engage with it in a subconscious way in ways that you don't really do when you're being blasted by this, you know, a backlit screen. And, um, it's an often un, unspoken difference between print and screen, which I think warrants some consideration, particularly amongst parents and librarians and others who are anxious to keep their children occupied and give them a screen. But actually, hang on a minute, don't ignore you know, the fact that the same information in a different medium might just be processed and dealt with in a very different way, just because of the way we're wired. Fascinating, really fascinating. Um, I wanted to spend the last few minutes of our time talking about another new project uh, that you have, which is your bedtime stories. Yes, the launch of the the imprint Britannica Books, we thought we'll, we'll introduce the imprint with two new books to start with. One is the encyclopedia, but the other one is uh, designed for younger children. And there is a very successful five-minute bedtime story genre, particularly in the States. And traditionally, this has been fictional stories that parents uh, would spend five minutes reading to their children before bedtime. And this is quite a mass market kind of proposition. These books are found in Costco and they're found in Walmart and, and they have to be sized at a particular size and they have to be priced at a particular price point. They're a mass market kind of book. And we thought, well... Does the Britannica brand have any proximity in that world? And we thought, well, yes, because let's take that idea and let's give it another nudge where we do nonfiction stories because the real world's more amazing than anything you can make up. Why shouldn't these five minute stories be informative? Why can they tell you more about the world you're living in? And given the curiosity that children have, surely this is a place for Britannica to be able to sort of, you know, establish itself and to, to put a driver tent pole on the ground. So this is Britannica's five minute, really true stories for bedtime. And it's all about things that happen at night. So what, when you go to sleep, 
what's happening in the natural world what birds are awake and which are asleep what animals are hibernating and which ones are out hunting and why let's tell their stories when you're asleep at night what jobs are people doing what's going on in the hospital what's going on in the sewers what's going on to prepare things you know at the bakers at four in the morning when he's they're, they're preparing the bread for the next morning or the newspaper man mm. you know when you're asleep at night what are they doing up in space in the space station you know how do they sleep up there and what do they do if they need to pee in the middle of the night how do they flush the toilet and then there are world record breakers people who've had you know from history of Tutankhamun have more than 30 beds well that's amazing isn't it and we'll tell the story or who had the loudest snore and why and you know and what are the cycles of the moon and why by the way why do we dream and what are dreams and you know all sorts of things that are to do with bedtime that can be told in a narrative form and illustrated and we've engaged with a range of illustrators for this book the design challenge here is incorporating different illustrative styles within the same book um, and you would never really know there are four illustrators uh, but there are um, and there are four authors actually so um, we went with trying to find people who are experts in their various areas and then who had experience of children's storytelling they all last about five minutes each and um there's a whole lot of stuff about how supple the brain is just before we go to sleep, how creative it is, how how it's ready to to put its its experiences and reorder them and process them. You know, before you do an exam, you're always told revise before you go to bed because you'll wake up in the morning and you'll remember it much better. Well, why not? Let's tell children about amazing, really true things that happen in the world. So when they wake up in the morning, their brain has sort of remembered these things and filed them in the right places because it's been able to do that during that process of sleep. So Again, we're hoping nonfiction children's literature in the five-minute stories for bedtime genre is something we can sort of carry forward into the future. Brilliant. Chris, it's always an education talking to you, and I've really enjoyed our chat today. Congratulations on such a, an amazing publishing project, uh, which I am sure is going to do incredibly well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki, and thank you for all you're doing to, um, to inspire people too. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.